We're going to start today the Romans series. I decided instead of doing a pastoral epistles series to lead into it, that I'm going to incorporate the pastoral epistles into into Romans. And I think you might see why today. And as I promised an old friend, I will be doing notes for every one of the messages in Romans, which I'm going to simply call RTE, Romans the Epistle, all caps RTE. And they will be available many times out at the MP3 table, but always on the website also. And speaking of that, in my absence, I hope you will understand that to be here is more important than when I am here. And that's because the men who are speaking in that I have prayerfully considered to speak in my absence, they don't speak as often as I do, and therefore they are cherishing a message from the Lord for a longer period of time. And I find that the more that happens, the more enriching and more powerful the message becomes over time. And I've experienced that even in being a week between messages, the enrichment that builds. And as Paul said, all the more in my absence. So the shop will be open on Sunday morning and Wednesday night. And I have the four horsemen. Now, one of the horsemen's already done his job. That's the white horse, Phil. And the other three horsemen are yet to do their jobs. Now, guess which horseman Pastor Messick is? Wrong. He's the pale horse. And guess which horseman Professor Sadar is? Wrong. He's the black horse. Guess which horseman Pastor Brown is? Wrong. He's the red horse. He's the red horse. So remember that. Now, they each have an identity, so it's an important identity. And so we want to make sure that we understand the message from the spirit of truth sent by the crucified and risen Christ, the message of supreme love, which is what Romans is. So Romans, you don't have to turn there because this is an introduction. The message, Paul and his earliest interpreters after today's message, I'm going to do another brief message as a lead-in to the communion service to set the pace for the Lord's table from here on in with us. It's an important part of the Lord's Supper. And so the ushers, I'll, I will actually call the ushers forward to bring you to the elements. All are welcome to partake of the communion today. And they will, you will do that after I finish this message so that we can have this as a part of our reflection. It's a corporate reflection And it's a corporate proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. It must be attended upon with solemnity, with seriousness, with attentiveness, and most of all, with love. Romans, the epistle, first segment, first lesson, which I entitled Paul and his earliest interpreters. In Romans, the epistle, which is going to be our series starting today. RTE, Romans, the epistle. Our task is interpretation. Our goal is understanding. Though there are some things in Romans that are hard to grasp, especially for 21st century students. We're going to weave into this study of Romans, as you'll see, especially in the introductory phase of it, some content from the pastoral epistles. First, Second Timothy, and Titus. These 
there are four important things. Now, again, you're going to have these notes. They are for your edification. They are, if you want to be serious about Romans, the notes will be available. They won't always cohere with the message because I usually innovate from them and do go on a lot of different tracks, but they will be available. And I think it's important at this time in our history that we appropriate God's message in Romans. So the, the notes will be available, and they will be in print and on the MP3 table Wednesday night. And I know you're all going to be faithful to assemble together in my absence. As I said, it's more important to do it in my absence than in my pre- when I'm here. In Romans, the epistle... Our task is interpretation. Our goal is understanding. And there are four things I want you to understand that will guide our thinking regarding the pastoral epistles as a lead-in to Romans. One, they imitate Paul in order to interpret. That's a direct quote from Ilaria L.E. Ramelli. They imitate Paul in, in order to interpret his thought. Secondly, And this is a quote from Douglas A. Campbell. They provide priceless information concerning how Paul was actually read by early interpreters against, as against how modern scholars think he was read. That's very important. Whether from Paul himself or from an early interpreter, the pastorals, in other words, are a summation of his thought. And that's extremely important. I'm not going to deal with the providence or the origin, the provenance or the origin of these epistles. I'm simply saying that what they do is they, they intend to summarize much of Paul's thought and interpret and bring very important interpretive information. So the first observation I just gave you is made by Ilaria L.E. Ramelli. And the second, Douglas A. Campbell, both... Highly regarded scholars. Both of these statements regard, if you'll notice, the interpretation of Paul. Two more things may be considered here. These are from my pen, as you would guess. Third thing, therefore, the pastoral epistles are canonical. They belong in the canon of Scripture as inspired. God breathed. So the pastoral epistles are canonical. And as such, they ought to be considered as accurate interpretations of Paul's thought. Fourthly, the pastoral epistles provide a link in the study of the interpretation of Paul from Paul himself to the patristic interpreters. Now, the patristic interpreters are what is known as the church fathers. They go from Bardason all the way back from almost the time of Paul to the ninth century, and that's Ariagena. Regarding the third thing, then, Ilaria Ramelli made the point that the pastoral epistles, quote, are no less universal than Paul is. No less universal. She proceeds there then to give examples of the universalism of Paul in the pastorals added to this is a statement made which you've heard me quote before in better call paul by ethelbert stauffer and he says quote 
The idea of a universal salvation did not die out even among Paul's disciples. After saying that, he too cites examples from the pastoral epistles, as well as from the Petrine epistles, which I'm going to hit also, First and Second Peter, and then from non-canonical sources. And so in the same note, our famous note, pound sign, I don't say hashtag, pound sign, 738. The author, he says, of 1 Timothy 2, 1 and following, directly connects the motif of intercession in Romans 9, 3 with the universal salvation in Romans eleven thirty six, and so provides us with an authoritative testimony as to the earlier exegesis or the earliest exegesis of Romans 9 through 11. He exhorts to intercession for all men or all humankind. There, Stauffer makes an explicit connection from the pastorals to Romans, the pastoral epistles to Romans, which this present study, at least in its introductory phase, will also do. And I'm going to do that. I've already got tracks to run on in this part of the series, which today I'm beginning. With reference to the fourth thing, that is, they provide a link in the study of the interpretation of Paul himself to his patristic interpreters. With regard to that, it is very important to note that almost all of the extant, that is, published that we have before us, that we have, the extant patristic interpreters of Paul from the New Testament itself all the way to Eriogena, E-R-E-R-I-U-G-E-N-A, otherwise known as John Scotus, in the ninth century, strongly emphasized the doctrine of apocatastasis, apocatastasis, or as Irenaeus called it in A.D. 125 through 202. He lived in 125 to 202. He called it recapitulation. And that's the Greek anakephaliosis. I'm intending to, when I write Greek words in these notes, they're not going to be in the Greek language. They're going to be the transliterations to make it simpler, to make it more streamlined. I have much to say. I don't have time to do a lot of detail work. So, in other words, the patristic authors, or those who were right on the heels of the New Testament, saw most clearly and pronounced most emphatically the doctrine of the restoration of all things, which Paul called the summing up of all things in Christ Jesus. Again, this kind of reiterates. Speaking of this, J.N.D. Kelly, writing on the distinctively Irenaean interpretation of the work of Christ, wrote this. The key conception which Irenaeus employs to explain this is recapitulation, anakephaliosis. Now that's from Ephesians 1.10, which he borrows from St. Paul's description of the divine purpose being to sum up all things in Christ. He understands, and this is from his book Against Heresies, the Pauline text as implying that the Redeemer gathers together includes or comprises the whole of reality in himself, the human race being included. These are interpretive of Paul. These are his earliest interpreters. There are many books about his recent interpreters. We're starting with his 
earliest interpreters, but that's not the most important thing that we're relying on in our study, as we'll see. It is the aim of this study, and this is very important to, to lay this down right at the beginning. I'll say it this way. It is not the aim of this study to make a case for Paul's universalism. Please notice that. It is not the purpose of this study to make a case for Paul's universalism, even though the theme of his Christological, eschatological universalism runs throughout his church epistles, as they're called, and runs through powerfully as a powerful current through the pastorals. It might even be said that the case of Paul's universalism has already been made by his early interpreters as it is being confirmed in some of his most distinguished modern interpreters, and there are some, and there are some distinguished ones. It is fair to say that our study of Romans the Epistle will be conducted under the pavilion of the already established reality of the ultimate saving concern and unrestricted love of the triune God for all human beings and for all creation. It will be under this pavilion in the light of this understanding that we will conduct our study. In this light, we will see light. So we begin with the light that's already been shed through our study of John's Gospel, our study of Rev the Book, and our study of Better Call Paul. So again, it's fair to say that our study in Romans the Epistle will be conducted under the pavilion of the already established reality of the ultimate saving concern and unrestricted love of the triune God for all human beings and for all creation. I use for that right off the bat Romans eight eighteen to 23 and Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Again, and this is important to lay down our purpose. I do not intend to present Romans as a pamphlet or a treatise on universal redemption, per se. It is not that. Romans is not a pamphlet on universalism. Nor am I doing this to help campaign for the cause of universalists, as they're called, and there are many kinds of those. Some are Christian, some are non-Christian, some are Unitarian, some are from other faiths. I am not doing this to help campaign for the cause of universalists, of which there are many types today. I am doing this study together with you. I am doing this to show that Romans, as well as all of Paul's epistles, were written in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. They were all written in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, which glory and which face Paul saw. 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? Am I not free? And so, 
Paul saw that glory. Also, Acts twenty two fourteen. It was appointed to Paul, says Ananias, on Straight Street, the first brother that Paul contacted after his vision of Christ. Ananias said, it was appointed to you to see the righteous one. That's important for Roman study also. And to hear the voice of his mouth and to know the will of God. And that's something that we're going to fan out on when I return. So, God, the the knowledge of the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus Christ. So we are proceeding in Romans, the epistle, with the conviction, and faith is the conviction of unseen things, and the assurance, and faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We are proceeding in Romans, the epistle, with the conviction and the assurance that the saving significance of Jesus Christ and of his death and resurrection is universal. And with the awareness that Paul himself wrote while cherishing this assurance, treasuring this conviction throughout. So it's much easier for Paul, for example, in Romans, where he has to reconcile warring factions among the saints. It's much easier to be a peacemaker, as Paul is in Romans. It's much easier to reconcile warring factions among Christians in Rome if he's doing so from a knowledge of an already achieved, though not universally realized, Reconciliation of the world to God in Christ. Under the knowledge of the already achieved but not yet fully realized reconciliation of the world to to God in Christ at the cross, it is much easier to proceed as a peacekeeper with believers and unbelievers as a peacemaker. So, I've already referred to a number of human authors and interpreters of Paul, which is kind of a forecast of my future with Romans. I will be studying many of the best, earliest, and latest scholars in Paul. And so I've already referred to a number of human authors and interpreters of Paul, who is called the apostle, he called himself this, the apostle to the pagans in Romans eleven thirteen. However, and this is more important still, It should not go without saying, and therefore it should be said, that our primary reliance, and I speak for myself, and I hope you all follow me in this, our primary reliance in this upcoming study must be on the spirit of truth, whom Jesus said will guide you into all the truth. The spirit of truth of whom Jesus himself, who is the Lord of the living and the dead now, he said of the Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth. That includes the truth, which even in Second Peter 3 is sometimes hard to be understood in Paul's epistles. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who is the Spirit of reality, that the reality that is incarnate in Jesus. Let me say that again. This is, first of all, John 16, 13. He will guide you into all the truth. 
the truth that he, the divine spirit of God, speaks is the reality that is incarnate in Jesus. And that's found in John 14, 6, in Ephesians 4, 21. And it is the reality that is incarnate in Jesus, who is the Father's word, who is God, and without whom nothing that ever came into existence came into existence. Nothing without him. Nothing will be redeemed either without him. But even as everything came into existence by him, everything will be redeemed by him and in him. So then, given this reality, our study must be conducted prayerfully as well as carefully. Prayerfully as well as carefully. Neither should it not be mentioned that though the spirit of, the tr- of truth is a perfect teacher, they shall all be taught by God, says the scripture. Though the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, is a perfect teacher, none of us are perfect students. Not one of us is a perfect student. That means, though he is a perfect teacher, none of us are perfectly attuned to his teaching. So we have to proceed carefully and prayerfully. So, the epistle of the Romans, or the epistle to the Romans, is God-breathed. God-breathed. God-breathed the words of Romans. Inspired, therefore, is another word for it, in 2 Timothy 3.16, as well as 2 Peter 3.15-16 where it mentions all of Paul's epistles in connection with the rest of the scriptures. The rest of the scriptures, therefore inspired and God-breathed. As God-breathed, it is therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Righteousness is very important because it is, perhaps, the key word in Romans a word that needs to be defined, fanned out for our edification. So, it is profitable, beneficial for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. But it is also divine truth. In other words, the truth of God, as Paul calls it in Romans fifteen eight. And in Romans 3, 4, as such, we cannot expect to wrap our arms or our minds around it. No commentary has ever done it. This one won't do it. This will take advantage of the best of the recent, the best of the historical, the best of the earliest interpreters of Paul. And most of all, lean very heavily, if not totally, on the spirit of truth. The spirit of God. And so we cannot expect to wrap our arms or our minds around all of it or around Paul's thinking itself. We can't wrap our minds or our arms around all of what Paul, who had the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16, knew and communicated. 
I don't expect to wrap my mind completely around Paul's mind. But I can't expect us all to let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus in Philippians 2.5. What we can be assured of at the start of Romans the epistle is that the spirit of truth, our divine guide, is the spirit of the God of love. In fact, he is the spirit of of the God who is love and of the crucified and risen Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Galatians 2.20, Titus 2.14. And so it's my prayer, and I'm saying it now before you, that the truth that we discover in this study will always be spoken in love. Not only by me and by others who teach it, but by all of you who converse about it or converse with the knowledge of it to others, that it will always be spoken in love, speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15. That's my prayer. And that it will result in faithfulness in us, a faithfulness in us that works by love. In Galatians 5, 6 and Romans 5, 5. And this is a faithfulness, and this is very important to Romans, the epistle itself. This is a faithfulness that can only be a participation by us in the faithfulness of God's Son, whom God's gospel is all about. Romans 1, 1 to 4. It's also my prayer then that this study in God's word will inspire and intensify hope. It is through our endurance that we have hope, according to Romans 5, 4 and 15, 4. So if you're enduring some things, God is intensifying hope in you. And he will take you through it. You may be passing through a host of thought testing and disaster testing and all kinds of other testing in feeling like you're lost in the woods. Well, let me just tell you this. I'll give you the compass. I'll point to true north and keep on until you get to the clearing. Your hope will be so intensified, it just might be contagious. And so... It is through our endurance that we have hope, according to Romans 5.4. But good news, God is the source of that endurance in Romans 15.4. Even as he's the source of the encouragement of the scriptures, says Romans 15.4-5, that we might have hope. Really, when you think about it, one of the practical reasons for teaching Rev the book was that reason right there in Romans 15.5, that we might have hope. Christ in us is that hope. Colossians 1.27, 1 Timothy 1.1. It's called the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in Romans 5.2, it's the hope of the glory of God. 
For even though we died and our lives are hid with Christ in God, when Christ appears in glory, you will also appear with him, all glorified in glory, the hope of glory. That's also found in Romans 5, 2, as I said, in Colossians 1, 27, and 3, 3 to 4. This hope is not just the expectation of our own glorification in Christ. No, it is not. It is not just the expectation of our own glorification in Christ. But it is of the knowledge of the glory of God that even now shines in the face of Jesus being manifested in all of humanity. That's our hope. And in all creation. 1 Timothy 2.4 The will of God as our Savior is that all men be saved, all humankind be saved, and come to the knowledge of the truth, the reality that is embodied in Jesus. It's God's will. And guess what? God does what he wills. God gets done what he intends. Isaiah 46, 10. And we'll fan that out. And in fact, that glory that shines even now in the face of the risen Christ, who is among us today here, especially as we participate together in his supper. The light that shines from his face, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, will shine in and through all creation on earth, even as it now shines in heaven. Even as his face lights up all of heaven, so the will of God is that his glory will shine in all the earth. In Habakkuk 2.14. And so there will be no need to evangelize in that day where all will know him, says Jeremiah 31.34. So the hope of glory is not just the hope of our own selfish glorification, the selfish hope, although that's included, but it's the hope that the glory that shines from the face of Jesus will shine in all creation and throughout the heavens and the earth and in all of humanity and all of its times. And that is the hope of glory. In fact, that's the gospel of the glory of Christ, which is now hidden to those who do not believe, hidden, veiled by the prince or the ruler or the God of this age. Veiled. And so its unveiling will be resisted fiercely, brutally, savagely by enemies that are too strong for us. Our battle is not with flesh and blood, not the true battle. But it's against enemies in Jeremiah thirty-one eleven that are too strong for us. Sin itself, the flesh as a supernatural enemy, principalities and powers, and death and the fear of death. We put on the full armor of God against these. That's the true war. And so, our hope is that this glory, our expectation is that this glory will be in all the earth. Numbers fourteen twenty one, Psalm seventy two nineteen, Isaiah six three b, Habakkuk two fourteen, Ephesians one ten. 
Colossians 1.20. Don't worry, it'll be on the MP3 table Wednesday, all these. And I do, if you want to study, if you want to just take the verses that are cited and follow them up on your own, you'll be amazed what the Holy Spirit will teach you in the continuity of these verses. In closing, therefore, in our introduction to Romans the Epistle, My prayer is also that by this study, under the help and guidance of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, whom he's also called, it's interesting, the Spirit of Truth in John sixteen thirteen is the Spirit of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1, 19. By the supply of the Spirit, the help of the Spirit, the guidance of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that we will realize a unity in Christ that now already embraces all believers and which will yet include all humankind and all of God's creation in all of its times. So it's plainly the aim and purpose of Paul, as we will see, that that which he calls my gospel, which can be also yours if you appropriate it, that which he calls my gospel in Romans 2.16 and in Romans 16.25, and in 2 Timothy 2.8, would be the means by which God would strengthen his readers in Rome, and in the time of the writing, to strengthen them. And Romans was most likely written in the spring of 52 A.D., And I'll still use the word A.D. even though they're banishing it from colleges and sometimes even from seminaries today. Just because of that, I'll use it. B.C. A.D. Not B.C.E. before the common era and C.E. the common era. Just because those old terms, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, is being banned from colleges, I'll use it. And so there's going to be a certain kind of audacity in our approach to Romans because Paul himself was very bold, audacious, as was Isaiah. Paul admired the audacity of Isaiah the prophet. I admire the audacity of all the prophets. I admire the audacity of Paul. And I expect to have the audacity of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit in our study of Romans. And I hope it bleeds over. So... It's Paul. We will see that Paul is, has written to us and not just the Romans. In 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, he has written to you. And we will also see that Paul is speaking to you. We did dial him up, you know. It took 109 messages to say that we've called Paul. Now, we're not just going to listen for Paul's voice. We are listening for the still small voice of the spirit of truth through his epistle. So perhaps we could say that it is the purpose of the parakletos or the Holy Spirit, the helper, to strengthen us in this time through Romans, the epistle, for the trials and adversities of the eschatological warfare that comes with an apocalyptic change of the ages. And that's where we are. 
And so, Father, we thank you for this lead-in to Romans. We pray that you, we do pray that you'll grant us a spirit of reliance upon the spirit of truth, and that this study in Romans by us in Tetelestai will be to your glory, and that it will be used to draw countless people to your Son, that it will be used to strengthen us in the trials and the adversities that come with an apocalyptic change of ages. And we thank you for this. Father, we pray nothing short of this audacious prayer, that we will see through it the light of the knowledge of your glory that shines in the face of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And as we move into the communion, I pray for the ladies' trip tomorrow, for the Jonah play, which is such a remarkable depiction of your compassion, Father, overcoming and mercy overcoming and triumphing over justice. We pray that you'll give safety and fellowship in both ways and that you will make a great blessing come upon the bus trip and upon the play itself, the fellowship, the friendship, and the communication both ways. And that's the difference. We understand a love that drives out all fear. We intend, by your grace and mercy, your kindness and your power, to be as Jesus is in this world. And he faced his fate without fear. We thank you, Father, that you've identified us with your Son, that you've saved us by grace and through a faithfulness that is not our own, and that you've called us to live a life which is merely a participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. May we not frustrate the grace of God. We ask this in his name. And now we will proceed with communion. Everyone is welcome. That includes you, Marilyn. Marilyn, you're welcome. Good to see you. Everyone's welcome. That's Bruce's mom. She's taking good care of him. She's here just to take care of him, actually. No, she she loves the fellowship. She loves all of you. And, in fact, yeah, you guys, usually you're ready to do this, but I I want to set a pace here for the Lord's Supper. So, uh, and I hope that this message will go to all of our DVD groups, too, because there's there's eight short things I want to hit just before our ushers come and take you to the communion elements. And I want to just call this discerning the body. And I think it's appropriate to begin our study of Romans with the celebration of the Lord's Supper together with you. And it's also I also treasure it because it's a short absence will be coming up. So it's fitting that we understand that the Lord's Supper is a corporate reflection The very word corporate comes from the word corpus, which means body. And the whole point about this is discerning the body. And that means eight different things. Discerning the body. Discerning the body. And so it's fitting, I think, that we begin the study of Romans by the celebration of the Lord's Supper together. In doing this, and every time we do this, we're celebrating the Father's love who did not spare his only son,
but freely gave him up for us all. It was a love that required the incarnation or the embodiment of his son, the taking on of flesh, the becoming of flesh, the taking on of the body in a very sacred sense, but in an audaciously sacred sense. Every time we meet, we are called to the most solemn thing that we can be called to in this life, and that is to identify the body of a loved one, to identify the body of Jesus Christ. Communion is a call to identify his dead body, for he died. But it's also the most remarkable thing. It is a call to come to identify the risen body of Jesus Christ, who still bears in that body the marks that led to his death, the marks that preceded and that occurred in his crucifixion. We are called to identify. And in Corinth, where they denied the bodily resurrection in some quarters, Paul said, you, if you drink this communion and you don't have the faith in the resurrection, you're drinking judgment to yourself. Because if there's no resurrection, what are you drinking this wine for? What are you drinking this fruit of the vine for? So, This is God's love that has made us the body of Christ. Second thing about discerning the body, we are members of one another. I can't emphasize to you, and I've tried to exhort all my life as a pastor, going into 40 years, November 18th, it'll be the 40th year. But you can't communicate it. You can only experience it. The necessity of being bodily together where the brethren are gathered together together bodily. There the Lord commands a blessing. Life. The life of the coming age experienced now, where bodies are together, jostling together, walking together to get the elements, offering encouragement to the preacher, to the speaker, offering encouragement one to another as the speaker encourages and as the songs the worship everything the prayer i had a feeling when i woke up this morning and don't blame others that aren't here that this communion would be one of the most special times that this group has ever been together not because of what i'm saying but because of the manifest presence of jesus christ right here right here with us which I expect more and more. And so, the body of Christ, in which we are all members of one another, is also the body of Christ himself, who now comprises his church. Christ is all and he's in you all, and who will yet comprise all of created reality. For that, I want to read 1 Corinthians 11 and the whole section on this very briefly. This, again, sets the pace. What is the meaning of this whole thing? What are we doing when we do communion? What do we do at the Lord's table? What are we doing? Corporate reflection. Corporate proclamation. Paul writes this. For what I received from the Lord, 
is just what I passed on to you. So when we study Paul, we're, pat, we're studying what Jesus said to his apostle. That the Lord Yeshua, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had made the baraka, the blessing, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this as a memorial to me. Verse 25, likewise also the cup after the meal saying, this cup is the new covenant effected by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it as a memorial to me. For as often as you eat this bread, Paul then comments on the words of Jesus seamlessly. So you don't even know it's really Paul coming in at first. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant affected by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it as a memorial to me. Paul then says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the Lord's bread or drinks the Lord's cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of desecrating the body and blood of the Lord. Very harsh, perhaps. Hate speech, not really. More like love speech. This is so that this will not happen. This is the doctrine that teaches us how important it is. Approaching the Lord's table, we are approaching the Lord himself. And so, notice it. A person who eats the bread, the Lord's bread, or drinks the Lord's cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of desecrating the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself first. Examine himself or herself first. And then he may eat of the bread and drink from the cup. That's why I'm taking this time before we get the elements. For a person who eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Paul is rebuking a neo kind of Platonism which denies bodily existence, which says that everything material is evil when God, in fact, emphasizes the body. You have been bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body, which belongs to God. Your body which belongs to God. I urge you, therefore, says Paul in the climactic passage of Romans, to present your body as a living sacrifice, discerning the body. Belittling the body itself is drinking this communion service for nothing. It's what is it? But you here don't have that problem, so I want you to get that out of your minds. So, He goes on to say to the Corinthians, this is why many among you are weak and sick and some have died. If we would examine ourselves, we would not come under judgment. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather together to eat, wait for one another. Back then they had a meal with this communion and it was followed by this service. If someone is hungry, he should eat at home. So that when you meet together, it will not result in judgment. Here's the things I want to hit you with real quick. One, discerning the bodily existence 
is what he's talking about in discerning the body. We are discerning or celebrating or appreciating that our bodily existence, our existence in bodies, is a primary element of God's eternal will. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. These bodies will be transformed, but they will be these bodies. So we discern our bodily existence is a primary element of God's eternal will. Romans 12.1, 1 Corinthians 6.20, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning God created. Secondly, discerning or recognizing our bodily existence, that's discerning the body, means recognizing and appreciating and celebrating our bodily existence with others. Psalm 133, dwelling together in unity where the Lord commands a blessing. Thirdly, recognizing our bodily existence in the body of Christ is also what it means. For we are members of Christ, but we are also members one of another, says Romans 12.5. And this also is the basis for husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. No man has ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherishes it. So shall a man love his own wife, even as his own flesh, his own body. Fourth then, recognizing the body means identifying the dead body of Jesus. Communion is when we go into the most solemn, and in one sense, if it weren't for resurrection, unbearably sad identification of the body of a loved one. As Romans, as Revelation 1, 7 says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and they shall mourn for him, says Zechariah 12, as over the loss of an only born son. And so we go to, a, we are in a sense called to go into the holiest place to identify the body of our loved one, Jesus himself, where he was a dead body. He who lived in a body of flesh died in a body of flesh and was a dead body until God raised him from the dead. So facing that reality, this is him. Will you say, how can you tell that this is your loved one? Because I heard that spikes were driven through his hands and his feet. And I heard that a, dra- a javelin was driven into his chest cavity and revealed that he was dead indeed. And I heard that a crown of thorns was driven into his forehead, which to me reveals that he took the curse that God placed on the earth for Adam's sake and took it on himself. Yeah, that's him. That's the body of my beloved. But then we are called into a most sacred precinct to identify his risen body, which is what Paul did shockingly on the road to Damascus. He saw him. The hands were still scarred. The feet were still printed with the nails. The side was still riven with a scar. Perhaps there was even some scarring on the forehead from the crown of thorns. But there was glory and the knowledge of the glory of God 
emanated right in the face of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Paul saw him, heard a word from his mouth, and learned the will of God, which is to all things be comprised in Christ, the mystery of his will, which is the interpretive path to Romans, the mystery of God's will. So, recognizing the body, the fifth thing means remembering his death. It means a reverent recollection of his blood that affected the new covenant. So as we recognize that he is present among us in his risen body that still bears the marks of his death and his dying, we also remember that the blood of the new covenant was shed at Calvary's cross, an unconditional covenant by which a new creation comes about through the creative and redemptive act of God in Christ, including the creation for us of bodies of glory like his own, an act that will occur when he comes, and he's coming. Six, the elements themselves, the fruit of the vine, unfermented fruit of the vine, and of the grain, show that this new creation is to involve all creation. This bread is my body. This bread is my body. It's, I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. And this bread is my flesh for, in its food for the whole world in John 6.51. So the fact that it's from the fruit of the vine and the fruit of the grain shows that Christ will comprise all of material reality, make everything fruitful, and fill up everything with its true identity when he comes. Seventh, discerning the needs of others in bodies. The very fact that we have bodies means that we have needs. In that case, it meant that many were hungry, and others were full. And those who were full didn't wait for those who were hungry. And there was a selfishness about it. There was a consumerism of evil. And therefore, Paul wanted them to shed that. Discerning the body means discerning the needs of others in bodies. Exemplified in the waiting until all receive the food. That's why I always wait for the nod of the ushers to say everybody's got the communion elements that wants it. And so finally, this means recognizing the value of being bodily together. There's nothing wrong with technology as we have it today as a means of getting messages. And we also recognize those who are sick and cannot be here with us. And one of the reasons I'm doing this is so that we can distribute this DVD so that people who can't be with us can have their own communion with us as they're shut in or hurting or sick or ill or incapable of coming. So, recognizing the value of being bodily together in the assembling of ourselves together. All the more now, while we're on the verge of the Bible being decidedly called hate speech, when in fact it's God's heartfelt love letter to all humankind when properly interpreted. And so with these words, 
I urge you all to keep assembling yourselves together bodily, together bodily. Because this is in anticipation of the final gathering when we all gather together and receive a glorified body like the body of glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So remember my death, he said, until I come. With that, please follow the lead of the ushers. Having discerned the Lord's body, let's partake of the bread. Take and eat, this is my body. Having appreciated the blood that was shed for not just many, but for all, let's drink the cup. And as is our custom, a custom started by the Lord with his disciples, we close with a hymn, which means you can exit and wait until you get to the hallways to fellowship, but we'll sing together this hymn. Thank you all for your attentiveness today.